Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it's great to have you back this week for yet another week of broadcasts here on Republic Broadcasting, and of course coming to you live on KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth. So thank you once again for tuning into the program, and I know I say this every week, but it's especially true this week, I think, that we have a very exciting week of broadcasts lined up for you. So as always, let's start perhaps by going over some of the things that will be coming up later in the week, and we'll be starting tomorrow night with what I assume will be a very fascinating conversation with Jeffrey Kay, who's been working with Jason Leopold of truthout.org on a very interesting story that's flown largely under the radar for many months now. And it was earlier this year that they broke the story of a whistleblower who was revealing about a a joint force intelligence command in the DOD that was secretly tracking al-Qaeda and bin Laden in the run-up to 9-11, and they were specifically called off of that. They were told to back, stand down and stop uh, basically trying to get bin Laden shortly before 9-11. And then the fact that, that they, they even existed was attempted to be covered up by the DOD, um, which tried to excise the entire story about them trying to find bin Laden. A very, very fascinating story, so please go to truthout.org for more on that. And there's a, an article called New Documents Suggest DOD Watchdog Covered Up Intelligence Units Work Tracking 9-11 Terrorists that will get you on board for that. I think that will be a very interesting conversation. And perhaps at some point later this week, although it hasn't been finalized yet, but perhaps we're going to be talking to none other than Dan Dix of Press for Truth, um, who people will probably remember for some of my work if they've been following CorbettReport.com for any length of time. He's a Canadian uh, pre- uh, independent alternative media activist and a documentary filmmaker, and he has a brand new website, PressForTruth.tv, a subscription-based video website, so I'm looking forward to that very much. We'll either be talking to him this week or perhaps when we return here on Corporate Report Radio in the new year, but at any rate, I, I really suggest you go and check out PressForTruth.tv and consider signing up for a subscription, as I myself just did, because truly, if we don't support the independent media, we are going to be left with the corporate garbage that we're being fed on a regular basis, and that unfortunately too many people are only too happy to swallow. And of course, later in the week, we'll have Food World Order updates with James Evan Pilato and Friday Night Highlights, going over some of the archives of CorporateReport.com material. But tonight, we're going to take a very, very, very different uh, tack, and we're going to look at something From a very different perspective, we're going to cast our minds back thousands of years to King Solomon's Temple and how it relates to the Manitoba Legislature Building in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, Canada. A very profoundly interesting subject, and we'll be going over this tonight with Frank Albo of frankalbo.com. He's a researcher who has been looking into the architectural nature of the Manitoba Legislature Building for years now. He wrote something called The Hermetic Code, and uh, we, he's also been looking at this and writing a book called The Secret Code, which you can order from his website, frankalbo.com. It is absolutely fascinating, and we're going to be delving into the secrets of this architectural landmark tonight on the program as we go over the, well, the similarities and perhaps some differences between this and King Solomon's Temple which people might know was described in great architectural detail in the Bible in uh, First Kings. So um, 
So I hope you're ready for tonight's broadcast. I think it's going to be a very fascinating conversation. And again, people who are looking for more about tonight's uh, subject, and uh, we can go to frankelbow.com for more on that. But let's take a short break. When we come back, we will start talking to Frank Elbow of frankelbow.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. to the broadcast friends james corbett here of corbettreport.com you are tuned into corbett report radio and tonight we're going to be talking to frank elbow of frankelbow.com we're going to be talking about the architectural enigma that sits in the geographical center of the north american continent in winnipeg manitoba canada the manitoba legislature building that frank elbow has devoted years of study to now Again, you can find out more about it from his website, frankelbow.com, where you can also purchase his book, The Hermetic Code, which is a really thorough uh, breakdown of the Manitoba Legislature building and the various parts within it. He also offers a Hermetic Code tour, and you can find out more about that on his website. But in order to set up tonight's conversation, let's just take a short uh, listen to a clip from a CBC feature report on Frank Elbow's work about Winnipeg's secret code. I've been studying the Manitoba Legislative Building for six years uh, obsessively because I believe it is a reconstruction of King Sullivan's Temple in the heart of the prairies. An encyclopedia of sacred architecture inscribed in stone. Winnipeg scholar and art historian Frank Alpo discovered that the building's architect, Frank Worthington Simon, was a student of alchemy, Freemasonry, and Hermeticism the wisdom traditions of the West. From these disciplines, Simon determined that certain symbols and geometric proportions could impact human beings in profound ways. Frank Simon's ultimate intention with the Manitoba Legislative Building is, to borrow his own words, that the, the building would, in the course of time, make people more intelligent, better balanced, and altogether more civilized human beings. All right, a very fascinating subject. So I'm very pleased to have Frank Elbow on the line with us tonight. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, it's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here about this, as I say, a very fascinating subject and one that I, I don't see get a lot of attention, or at least as, not as much attention as I think it should, because, of course, this is not something that is only applicable to the Manitoba Legislature Building. We see this kind of sacred geometry and and the rather mystic aspects of architecture in various places, and perhaps the American listeners will be more familiar with the Washington, D.C. Uh, layout and things like that. But, of course, the Manitoba Legislature Building is in itself just a very fascinating subject. So perhaps the most logical place to start our discussion would be to talk about your yourself and your background and how it is you came to start studying this building. Well, um, I'm presently an architectural historian at the University of Cambridge. I also am a part-time lecturer and professor in the history of art and history at the University of Winnipeg and also Manitoba. Um, I've spent uh, uh, a decade or nearly actually 14 years in um, academic research on uh, subjects related to Freemasonry and the Western mystery tradition, both of which are 
um, perfectly uh, exemplified in this wonderful monument uh, in in Manitoba. Um, I do think it's unique. I don't think that there's um, other buildings that are quite like it. And why it happens to be is actually uh, an interesting story because for most of your listeners, they would think, what on earth does Winnipeg have to do with the mysteries of Solomon's Temple and, and all of these other uh, um, great and fascinating um, uh, occult elements? But um, uh, that uh, might take some time for us to um, articulate during the show. I'm sure, um, no, but or perhaps you can start by telling us what made you interested in the building in the first place. Oh, right. Well, it actually happened by sheer accident. I was uh, desperately looking for a topic for my thesis paper. My first graduate degree was in the languages and cultures of the ancient Middle East. And um, out of the corner of my eye, driving down a familiar street in Winnipeg, I spotted that there were these uh, colossal Egyptian sphinxes on the roof of um, the Manitoba Legislative Building, which is, of course, the uh, uh, the building of provincial power where laws are enacted in the province. And... Um, just from this one simple question, what on earth are they doing there, set me down this intellectual odyssey, a kind of rabbit hole of um, esoteric research trying to get into the mind of um, this dead architect, Frank Worthington Simon, who, in my estimation, was just an unsung luminary of um, uh, uh, just a fount of, uh, of occult knowledge who dedicated his life to uh, architecture and how architecture acts as a, a really profound instrument, a, a moralizing device, as he thought of it. Um, and this was his magnum opus. He could have uh, easily built um, uh, this work in many other places. In fact, he almost won the, the competition to build the United Grand Lodge of England, the largest uh, architectural um, Masonic lodge in the world at the time. And a very good friend of his built several buildings in Washington, D.C., including um, the Federal Reserve Board Building on Pennsylvania Avenue. And so he was a, a, an architect of extraordinary stature, and um, but he had uh, deep and profound mystical leanings, which um, uh, had uh, him wandering from place to place, whether it was doing um, architectural um, uh, excavations at, uh, on the Athenian Acropolis or teaching um, students in the history of art at Edinburgh. So um, anyways, he just happened to be somebody that uh, had truly engaged my my fascination and sent me on this this quest to understand uh, this extraordinary work that he built in um, the center of the continent. Well, perhaps you can flesh out some of the details about this building and when it was built and and some of those uh, details that people might not be familiar with. Sure. Well, it was uh, awarded by Architectural Competition in 1913. It took seven years to build. It was finished in 1920. It was built at a time when Winnipeg was one of the fastest-growing cities in North America, if not the fastest-growing city. It was uh, a time of just unprecedented growth and bare-knuckle capitalism in, in the city that was, uh, uh, for a great period of time, uh, considered the Chicago of the North. Most people, even in Canada, didn't, didn't know this. Because of its geographical location, it was um, supposed to be this extraordinary um, uh, metropolis. And so the early legislators um, spared no expense in getting the best architects, designers, and craftsmen. In fact, several of the sculptural reliefs were carved by the same people that carved the colossal statue of Lincoln in D.C. and several of the pediment reliefs of the U.S. Capitol building. And um, so what? Um, uh, the, when the work was completed in 1920, he left several rather curious 
um, ideas that the building was a type of instrument, that it wasn't just simply office space for the government, but that what he devised was a type of architectural talisman, something that could have this profound effect on uh, your soul. Now, in my uh, investigations into uh, dealing with um, his architectural training, I found that uh, he was a member of very uh, prestigious Masonic Lodge in, in, in Paris, that he was the Grand Architect of Scottish Freemasonry, something that's a very distinguished post, and that he used this building to just pour all of his ideas um, at the level of Da Vinci's genius into one building. And so what he, what he did was he created a type of edifice that as you walked through it, it was meant to initiate you into various different secrets simply by walking through it. And he was a very learned man. He read Greek and Latin, and he knew some Hebrews. So he wasn't just somebody who had a, a faint um, uh, knowledge of the um, uh, Western esotericism, but somebody who really deeply imbibed on, on this. And so, um, uh, in a sense, he, he, this, in this one single building, he included just a mountain of knowledge. It's kind of like, perhaps to your listeners, they might know of the Voynich manuscript or, um, uh, say, um, the Emerald Tablet or, you know, one of these, um, kind of fountainheads of, um, of esoteric thought. This is in the same league, but as an architectural edifice. And it wasn't until, and it took me literally 10 years and, several graduate degrees, trying to get into his mind to actually, in the end, ultimately decode what he intended to do. And I don't think there was anything really nefarious in mind. I don't, it was way beyond what the government's comprehension uh, was, even though um, uh, a, a number of them, uh, in fact, the entire board uh, who who end up um, uh, selecting him were, were Freemasons, but they had a very limited provincial knowledge of, of Freemasonry, and to a large extent, Freemasonry is only one facet of the elements that he incorporates into the building, and so it's a. Um, there are um, uh, alchemical tropes. There are um, ideas that relate to uh, the sacred architecture of, of ancient Egypt. Uh, certain plans that were incorporated into the cathedrals of Europe. He was like really a professor of of architecture, but at the same time, somebody who had a most incredible um, depth of knowledge on. Um, mysticism and, well, what you might call the occult, but not in the terms of that, um, in, in the classical definition of hidden knowledge. Well, this so, is not uh, necessarily sorry, a, a I know famous that, building, I, that I would really say. Um, any, there uh, are people who are perhaps familiar with this through your work, but not, not there's not a widespread knowledge of this. And I, I would say that just looking at it, at pictures of it from the outside, there is, I mean, it's an impressive looking building, but I wouldn't say mm-hmm. it would... Uh, particularly strike me as, as a recreation of uh, Solomon's Temple or anything of that yeah. sort. What can you tell people about the outer edifice and the way that it looks? It prevents its, presents itself to the outside world. No, sorry for uh, almost interrupting you a couple of times, but you're right. On the surface, it looks like several other state legislative buildings that uh, seem to borrow this style of architecture, neoclassicism. And I mean, it's a domed building. It's actually not very large. Um, and uh, But the thing is, is that it... Um, it contains in this one single piece, to um, uh, to the best of his ability, um, a uh, just an extraordinary lexicon, a profound vocabulary of, um, of occult knowledge in it. It was really unlike. I can't. I don't. I I spent a, a good portion of my 
um, uh, academic life in, in pursuit of other buildings like this, thinking that surely this didn't emerge out of a vacuum, but this is really a, a type of Mona Lisa. Um, and so you, you, you mentioned that on the surface it doesn't seem to appear to have this uh, reference to Solomon's Temple. Well, not biblically speaking. Um, uh, Solomon's Temple is probably the most in, uh, uh, reused edifice in the history of the Western canon of architecture. Uh, so this is his particular interpretation of what it would look like. Uh, there are countless buildings that have used Solomon's Temple as a template, but this one is an occult version. All right, let's hold it right there. We're coming up on a break, but let's continue after the break with Frank Elbow of frankelbow.com. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Frank Elbow of FrankElbow.com, the author of The Hermetic Code about the architectural enigma of the Manitoba Legislature building, a very, very interesting building. And the more one studies it, the more amazing it becomes. But, of course, there are probably a lot of people out there in the audience who are not really familiar with this building or its structural features. So perhaps we can start outlining some of them and going into some of the, the more interesting points about this building. And, of course, there are many, 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 many more. So I would once again direct you to frankalba.com to start exploring this and watching the videos and seeing the pictures for yourself. But uh, we'll do the best we can just representing it here in words. So, Frank, perhaps we can start by talking about the Golden Boy, which might be the first Mm -hmm. element that most people would recognize about the building from the outside. Yeah, that's true. It's a a Canadian icon. It's the first uh, uh, feature of the building uh, that people most recognize. It's it's a golden effigy that crowns the dome of the building um, of a naked boy carrying uh, a torch. Now, the uh, architect had uh, borrowed this from a very famous uh, 15th century statue of Hermes, and in fact, he was, um, to a large extent, a student of uh, the Hermetic tradition, uh, so much so that, um, you see, most people don't know this, even uh, uh, great students and authors of, of Freemasonry, is that Hermes is the hero of the entire um, um, uh, craft of Freemasonry, and this is in the oldest annals of, of Freemasonry, where it's Hermes who passes on these four arcane sciences to the first builders responsible for the construction of King Solomon's Temple, and those four sciences relate to uh, numbers, that numbers thought to have power, that geometry is a mystical art, that alchemy is essential to the reformation of the soul, and ultimately that the motions of the heavens tap in. Sorry, Frank, you're, you're breaking up a little bit. Perhaps we can start start that sentence over again. I said that the, the, the bill on the patient of Hermes, whose sciences were first passed to the first Freemasons and relate to numbers, astrology, the motions of the heavens, geometry, and ultimately alchemy. These are, it's from this vocabulary of knowledge that he encodes the building. It's like a giant Sudoku puzzle but the only way you can crack the code of it is if you have this uh, profound appreciation for uh, um, uh, esotericism. So Hermes is the crowning feature on the dome, but the building is dedicated to two divinities. One is in the form of um, uh, the province, um, uh, which is represented in the form of this statue uh, uh, at the entrance. The other is the crowning of Hermes. There are other things throughout the building that are 
are absolutely remarkable. Uh, for instance, uh, on the dome, uh, on, on the roof of the building, when I mentioned sphinxes, what I didn't know at the time that first drew my attention is that they have on their chest a hieroglyphic inscription, which isn't altogether strange, but what makes them remarkable is that it is actually legible if you know how to read Middle Egyptian. So they went this level of details. It's not like there are ropes of different uh, um, hieroglyph um, characters. Their inscription on the chest of the Sphinx is actually legible, and it's an invocation to the sun god. It actually comes from an ancient prayer on foot and eight statues and temples. So there's no building that I not want to draw that actually has this kind of depth of on. Uh, Interesting stuff, but it looks like uh, it looks like unfortunately we've just lost Frank. So uh, so we'll we'll try to get him back on the line for you. But uh, but while he's away, I will just continue on about the Golden Boy. And I'm just going off of Wikipedia that uh, that veracity uh, uh, veracityless um, encyclopedia where it it is going on about the Golden Boy representing the fourth element, four elements that uh, that Frank was just talking about: there, alchemy, earth, air, fire, and water. And um, also, it's 224 feet. Uh, the, the central tower is 242 feet without the Golden Boy statue. So I wonder uh, if there is significance to that. But uh, but there certainly is significance to some of the other dimensions in the building, including the grand staircase, uh, which leads to a perfectly square room measuring 66.6 feet on each side, which represents, of course, the number 666. And, uh, which in, in itself is, uh, the sum of all numbers from 1 to 36, and 36 being the square of 6. So it is in itself a mathematically interesting number. But I think we all know the, uh, uh hidden occult meanings of that. And, uh, there are other, uh, sorry, do we have Frank back on the line? Yep. Okay, Frank, sorry right, about that. We, we just lost your connected. connection there. But, but let's, let's move on to the, the grand staircase and some of the other elements. Okay. Sure. Uh, that, 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 there's an interesting feature there. I don't know if um, uh, you caught the, um, uh, my description of this hieroglyphic inscription on, on the chest of the sphinxes, but it's actually yes, an yes, invocation. Uh, it's now in the, in the interior inside uh, the Grand Staircase Hall. Um, is built in the dimensions, which very strangely, um, it's 66.6 feet in width and 66.6 feet in length. Now, obviously, people will immediately associate that by Christian sensibilities with the number of the beast from the book of Revelation, but the, uh, uh, the architect had a different reading of it, and that was that uh, 666 in the occult tradition is the number of the sun, and he was trying to use, by virtue of this number, drawing down the uh, uh, energy of the sun with the sun's number. Now, as far as I know, it's the only building in the world where laws are enacted that actually has a 666 literally inside of it and also outside of it because the whole footprint of the building is exactly 666 feet if you add up the length and width. Um, uh, elsewhere in the interior, there are very explicit um, illustrations of initiations into Freemasonry, which are veiled as a form of, of um, a war mural, the... Um, uh, the Lieutenant Governor's room has... Uh, All right, hold it right there. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into Republic Broadcasting, and I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Frank Elbo of FrankElbo.com. That's F-R-A-N-K-A-L-B-O.com. And he's the author of The Hermetic Code about the architectural secrets of the Manitoba Legislature building. And we're just running through some of the more interesting points about this building. But obviously, if you can spend uh, 10 years of your life studying it and still not know all of its secrets, then perhaps we will uh, not be able to crack them all in tonight's uh, episode of the broadcast. So I do wholeheartedly suggest that you go to frankalbo.com to start exploring more about this building and if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, the phone lines are open at 1-800-313-9443. But, Frank, let's, uh, let's continue going through some of these, uh, these points about the building. And, uh, and one thing that, that immediately grabbed my attention was the Pool of the Black Star, an absolutely, I think, bizarre but fascinating architectural feature. Perhaps you can tell us about this. Yeah, it's uh it's a space that's in the in it's in the center of the building uh on the main floor. It's beneath the the rotunda and it has the most per- extraordinary acoustic uh uh space. The the resonance from within the star is unlike any other uh dome chamber I've ever been in including the, the US Capitol building which does have uh a profound acoustic effect from the center of uh of that area. Um the the architect incorporated particular sequence of numbers uh, in the dimensions to the height of the eye of the dome so as to replicate um, the musical fifth. And the reason he did this is because in occult lore, this particular interval, it's a harmonic interval, is said to be the voice of Hermes. So when you, lit- when you speak from this star and your, ar- again, your, your voice literally booms everywhere to all parts of the building, the third floor, furthest office, if anyone happened to be working, uh, which rarely they do uh, in government, um, they would hear your voice, and and you don't even have to uh, speak so profoundly. So um, he, they're, they're, and, and it's it's quite a mystical experience people have in there. And in fact, uh, last year I had the opportunity of of touring the Queen's royal entourage. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth uh, came to uh, Canada as part of this royal tour, and uh, I was asked by the Protocol Office of of Canada to offer a tour with the caveat that I couldn't talk about anything related to conspiracy, anything related to uh, the occult, Freemasonry, or any scandal. And I said, well, that's the entire history of the building, so I refused to do it. But um, uh, in the end, they, they conceded, and there seemed to have been some pressure um, from their entourage to have a tour of the building. And so anyways, I took these several regal attendants from Buckingham Palace through, through the building, and one of them, who was very astute, this was the, the first lady of... Um, uh, uh, the Queen just knew, and this is very rare. I've, I've toured about eight thousand people uh, through the building over the over the years. Uh, it's become a, um, a signature destination site for Canada. It's actually uh, um, uh, broadcast and advertised internationally by the government of Canada. Canadian tourism chooses this building as one of its top forty national destination sites because simply my my, my research on it is. You're irrefutable. It's not like somebody can go in and, and, and dismantle it. The building is an occult edifice. That's all there is to it. It happens to also enact law. So there I was in the pool of the Black Star with this, um, uh, uh, the First Lady of the Queen, and she um, 
basically went into a not I won't say a trance, but uh, she started uh, uttering all of these um, uh, very interesting phrases related to Euclid and Pythagoras and the harmony of the spheres, and and um, uh, and she uh, then enlisted me to do some research for her because she was certain that her grandfather had been in that building to do a ceremony. Um, with uh, several uh, Royal Irish Freemasons in the 1930s, and it turns out she was absolutely correct. So the building's got a very interesting history, both uh, in terms of um, uh, the things I've talked about, but there's nothing like this <laughs> really. I mean, it's, it's undescribable. Unless you actually stand in this star and you hear the boom of your voice and the echo and the reverberation of this, musical interval resonating through your bones it's it's quite transformative and and um you know i bring skeptics through the building all the time and they'll be like ah you know maybe this is this is motif and uh these are just ornamentations and whatnot but the moment you step in the star and you hear the uh, um uh, this uh, acoustic reverberation it's just undeniable that there's something quite um remarkable about the building's architecture Indeed, and very interesting that the Royal Entourage is so well-versed in its history. But, um, but Well, only one know. member of it. <laughs> only one. The rest were, were uh, uh, not so, uh, well, I didn't think very keen, but carry on. Very interesting. Well, uh, of course, when we're talking about Solomon's Temple, I think the thing that will come to most people's minds is the Holy of Holies, the 20 cubits in length, breadth, and height uh, room that occupies the... The, the sort of the heart of the the building. So I assume there must be a holy of holies in the Manitoba Legislature building as well. Uh, yes, absolutely, there is. It's a it's a room that is uh, uh, off limits to the public. It uh, is only open once a year, as the case was in uh, the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple. It was opened um, uh, during the time of the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and. Uh, similarly, this and and on that day, this is when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and announces or pronounces the unutterable name of God, the uh, Tetragrammaton, and then by virtue of that brings divine assent to all uh, God's laws. Uh, now, um, by association, this room is also only opened once a year. It's called the New Year's Levy. It happens to be built in the exact biblical description of the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple, right down to the cubit measurement. And um, uh, the office of that uh, of that particular um, political functionary is the high priest of the building in Canada. It is the lieutenant governor, the governor general, who brings basically royal assent to all Canadian political law. So this is the Queen's appointment in Manitoba, who has the office of the um, the Holy of Holies, um, and directly above that room. Um, like virtually hidden in plain view, it, it's it's also not open to speculation. Is a um, an ark of the covenant, a rectangular war chest flanked by these two winged cherubim, and it's even built in the in the uh, exact ratio dimensions of what the ark of the covenant is. So um, it, it's it, it's at this level of detail that makes you know it's kind of. To you know, borrow the very famous quote of uh, my famous uh, favorite philosopher Foghorn Leghorn, he said, "You can argue with me, son, but you can't argue with mathematics." And the building is just a mathematical code, and some of these numbers they just line up perfectly. Um, so, um, but this was just you know, this is one man's vision to do this uh, in uh, 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 in this one building, and he coded it so intensively 
that he was challenging us to try to figure it out. He, he did. He really wanted uh, uh, it to be exposed, um, but um, he was uh, he wanted people to go through it and be be, be uh, challenged by its anomalies and try to um, ascertain what it was all about. And it just so happened I required ten years of my of my time to do it. <laughs> well, congratulations, Frank. I'm pretty sure that's the first uh, Foghorn Leghorn reference on Corbett Report Radio, so my hat's off to you for that. But, uh, okay. But the, well, how about some of the other elements of the Solomon's Temple, like the, the, the porch, the, the two pillars, mm-hmm. the holy place? Are they also yeah. encoded in here? Well, um, uh, King Solomon's Temple had uh, was tripartite, uh, and this was the uh, a convention in ancient architecture. And what that, what that means is, is that it was in three divisions of increased order of holiness. There would be the holy room or the porch, uh, um, the more holy room or where the altar uh, was, and then the most holy room. And this is the convention that goes back uh, all the way to Chetelhoyak in the oh, 7th millennium B.C. Uh, in Turkey. Uh, and this was just um, a way of showing this kind of progression into um, holier and holier places. And this building also incorporates that same tripartite uh, function. And what you'd find at the entrance of the temple were apotropaic icons, icons that turn away evil in, in Gothic cathedrals. These are in the form of gargoyles, which have no biblical reference, and people rarely ask the question, what on earth does a gargoyle have to do with a Christian house of worship? But they perimeter uh, Christian cathedrals all over the world. And this is part of this old pagan vocabulary of architecture, of putting hideous icons or menacing beasts at the entrance, as it was in, in Solomon's Temple that we know in several um, uh, the earlier uh, templates of Solomon's Temple in the ancient Mediterranean uh, and the, the Middle East, they, it was flanked by um, horned bulls, and those would be placed at the entrance as a kind of form of, of uh, uh, evocation of fertility, but also this apotropaic function. And sure enough, in the Grand Staircase Hall, there are these giant bulls, and you have to ascend up the stairs, and then you're, you encounter the altar, and uh, it's in the Manitoba Legislative Building, as it is in Solomon's Temple, where you'd find the altar in uh, the very center of the building. It's not, uh, but not everybody has access to the Holy of Holies. This is reserved only for the high priest. And equally, even though I was given a government grant, um, in fact, I was sanctioned by the, the premier at the time I was uh, doing my, my research to have complete carte blanche access to all parts of the building, the tunnels beneath, the, the dome, every single scrap of government archive documents, some of which were uh, initially forbidden to me when I was writing my MA thesis, and um, uh, he opened up all of this material uh, for me, but he said, there's one place I cannot give you access to, which is the office of the lieutenant governor, And um, but uh, he has, uh, so I had to get direct um, uh, permission from him to access this room, measure it, uh, look at its contents and whatnot. And there are several very, very interesting things inside. Um, there are uh, these uh, spittoons, which uh, embossed all around them are the, the stages of the um, uh, alchemical marriage, exactly in order. You go from one to the other, and uh, it turns out that these spittoons are a reflection of the same stage that you walk through in the building. The, 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 the purpose of the building isn't that it's just there and that, uh, 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 the government uses it, but it's intended for us to actually use it. It's like an instrument. It really is a esoteric instrument, a type of talisman 
It just so happens to be 250,000 square feet. Absolutely incredibly fascinating and it strikes me that that as you say there's absolutely there's nothing here that 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 can be debunked about this this all comes down to the mathematics and the measurements and and everything that can be decoded about it so how has your work been received generally speaking in in the architectural world specifically and and in the broader public well um i i it's been well of course you have uh in in government i don't i have a number of detractors but uh it's just something that uh, they're going to have to live with. I never put hieroglyphic inscription on the roof. I never, and and not to mention that the uh, there is a bizarre repetition of numbers, which is also irrefutable. The number thirteen repeats through all parts of the building: thirteen lights on every floor, every level, every hall, uh, uh, three flights of thirteen stairs. The golden boy, who's Hermes, is thirteen feet, and so these are just things that are, are not subject to a kind of uh, a reinterpretation. So. Um, to answer your question, I've given several papers on uh, the Manitoba Legislative Building. It was in a, uh, a conference in Germany that I presented a paper where I was approached by a very senior and um, uh, noted eminent um, British architectural historian that he said, I really think that you should uh, pursue this study uh, at Cambridge University. And I thought, are you kidding? Um, I'm... <laughs> I'm Canadian. I've no... Uh, uh, my, my previous academic training was in... Western mysticism and um, uh, ancient Middle Eastern languages, and um, so several doors were open for me. And now I'm uh, completing my doctorate very soon, and it's I I think that I began to carve out an, uh, a niche of looking at architecture in a new way. Um, I mean, I know that there are several other studies that have been done on different facets of, say, Washington D.C., but um, there there are it, it not a lot of it is. It, very rare that it's bulletproof. Like David Overton's, it's a fine study, but it's erroneous in many areas. It doesn't cover, for instance, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this, about L'Enfant and about uh, uh, George Washington's efforts to um, uh, be directly involved in uh, the layout and the planning of D.C., but much of D.C. changed dramatically in the beginning of the 20th century, and it's actually that effort that is far more important than all the early 18th century uh, speculations, but that goes um, uh, largely uh, unnoticed, and it's because people don't do their, their due diligence on, on various facets. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, my long-winded answer is is that, uh, of, of course, there are detractors, but um, uh, I'm published in, in peer-reviewed academic journals. It's been uh, uh, widely, um, I think, accepted. It's part of Canadian Tourism Commission. It's just something that we have to live with, <laughs> and I, they're not going to destroy it. It's well uh, valued at over um, uh, one billion dollars, and it's, it's really an extraordinary building. And for for those who haven't uh, seen your work before, tell them about uh, the Hermetic Code and the information it contains. Well, the Hermetic Code is a, a, a book that documents uh, my um, my efforts into understanding this architect's ambitions to build this building, uh, uh, several of the tribulations that he encountered along the way, but more importantly, uh, what the building represents and all of these, um, well, hidden in plain sight secrets uh, about it. Um, and it was published uh, in 2007, and it's uh, gone through three printings. It became a Canadian bestseller in, about, I think, four weeks. 
um, the CBC did, uh, did uh, the very first copy of the Hermetic Code that uh, was in print went to Dan Brown because my publisher's uh, fiance what uh, was his first cousin still is his first cousin and um, uh, I received um, uh, something from him indicating that there was or um, uh, that he'd received a copy of the book and that he found it very interesting and it just so happens that his next book on uh, I, I, I actually haven't read a single Dan Brown book, so I don't know. Um, uh, the Lost Key or the, the the Washington, D.C. and the Mason's Plan uh, book, um, there was a kind of token reference to something that I was discussing in Manitoba. So um, I guess it's, it's had some popular uh, uh, enchantment that way. And I'm just about to, to uh, next year, um, have a full-length feature on a documentary, 90 Minutes, uh, that will hopefully air um, in the United States in this, on Discovery Channel and also in Canada through the History Channel and, and perhaps uh, uh, the British Network uh, next year. So um, uh, it, I, I think that it's going to become a lot more popular very soon. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we have another ground floor here on Corporate Report Radio. And uh, I'm glad you said all of that because I thought I was the only person who hadn't read a Dan Brown book and was proud of that fact. But but interesting nonetheless. So so you have a lot of stuff uh, on your plate right now and even more coming in the future. And again, I I would really suggest that people go to frankelbow.com where, of course, you can find information about uh, about not only his book but also there are various videos there there's uh, there's information on his research and his biography so you can find out much more information from frankelbow.com but let's take uh, our final break here on corporate report radio and when we come back we'll we'll talk a little bit about what the future might hold hold for frank elbow and information uh, a little bit more information about the manitoba legislative building Welcome back, friends. We are here in the final closing minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been talking to Frank Elbow, the author of The Hermetic Code, which you can find out more information about at FrankElbow.com. But, Frank, uh, just in the final few minutes here, I, I, I see you have a lot on your plate already, but uh, as I understand, you're also working on developing some, some potential future projects with the University of Winnipeg. Is that right? Yeah, um... I, I teach um, several undergraduate classes um, uh, in the summer. Um, one is on mystical architecture, which goes through the history of um, esoteric approaches to architecture from uh, Solomon's Temple right up into um, uh, uh, modernism. And then uh, I also have another class called Forbidden Knowledge, which looks at um, uh, the Western mystery tradition and includes top, um, classes on alchemy, um, uh, Kabbalah, uh, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, the Freemasonry, and um, uh, I think Hermeticism. Um, and so as far as I know, this is uh, next to the University of Amsterdam, the only um, uh, uh, academically credible um, uh, uh, courses, coursework in the history of um, uh, mystical and esoteric thought, whether in art or architecture or just simply history. Um, there was a possibility that the university was planning on streaming those uh, uh, those courses based on on interest, and I'm of course open to that. I yeah, 
love democratizing knowledge. Um, and, um, yeah, so we'll, um, <laughs> we'll see, um, uh, what, what's in store, um, with new students around the world. Well, democratizing knowledge is what we're all about here on Corbett Report Radio. So, um, as a Calgarian, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm jealous of all those, uh, University of Winnipeg students who get to study <laughs> in those courses. So, so my hat's off to you for all of that work. And, uh, and just, just finally here, perhaps you can tell people again about the website and what they can find there. Okay, well, uh, my website's just simply frankalbo.com, uh, A-L-B-O, and on there I have uh, my list of uh, classes available. There's also, um, I believe, a link to my published papers. Uh, there's several video um, links um, uh, from national documentaries to even uh, uh, shorter interviews. I'm actually now working on a very exciting project with the um, uh, First Nations communities in, in Canada, um, because there's a, um, a Canadian Human Rights Museum, which is presently underway in in Winnipeg, is um, uh, asked for my um, uh, my involvement in finding a way of introducing Indigenous uh, uh, architectural knowledge into the building. And there there are some profound things there. Maybe on another time we could talk about Canada's Stonehenge something that most people don't know about, but it's the largest, oldest um, rock settlement site in all of North America. It's uh, in the Canadian white shell. It's currently perimetered by a 30-foot barbed wire fence, and uh, nobody knows about it. And it's probably about 5,000 years old. It's the, the largest um, stone Canadian temple, perhaps in uh, even American one. And uh, it was built by the... Um, uh, uh, the, the First Nations people, uh, with a very uh, comprehensive knowledge of the stars. A lot of the uh, rock settlements are actually uh, pictograms of different um, uh, constellations um, that we did not know that First Nations people 5,000 years ago had any knowledge of. Absolutely incredible. Well, not only do most Canadians not know about it, I myself am ashamed to admit I didn't even really know about it, so I certainly would be interested in talking about that with you in the future. Once again, Frank Elbow of frankelbow.com. So thank you for your t- time tonight, and thank you all to all of you out there listening. I hope you'll continue to tune into the broadcast this week as we talk tomorrow night with Jeffrey Kay of truthout.org about his research into 9-11. So until then, thank you so much for listening, and take care.